Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for dying for us on the cross and, and bearing our burdens, Lord. And Jesus, we could never repay that. We don't desire to repay it. But Lord, we desire to love you. We desire to be back united with you. Lord, like Adam and Eve were before they sinned in the garden where they could just walk with you, Lord, and, and talk with you and have perfect fellowship and union and connection. Lord, we, we are given that through this glorious new covenant of, of what you've done for us, Jesus. And so, Lord, we love you. We respond to what you've done in love. And, Lord, part of that, Lord, is we desire to hear from you. And, Lord, I pray that your word right now, you would be faithful to, to teach us and, and bring revelation into our hearts and into our lives. So, Lord, we, we give great importance and weight to your word here. And we ask that you teach us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, and we wrapped up our, our look at the witness of the Holy Spirit. And that was the third work of God that we saw in the first few verses of Ephesians. First, we saw the will of the Father. Then we saw the work of the Son. And then we saw the witness of the Holy Spirit. And what that's called in the book of Ephesians, and as you guys study the book of Ephesians, that's called the threefold charter. And when I first read that, I was like, I don't know what the word charter means, so I looked it up. And a charter, this is the definition, is a grant of authority or rights stating that the grantor formally recognizes the prerogative of the recipient to exercise the rights specified. Which is a big fancy way of saying that you have my permission to have all these things. You get this. This is given to you. So a charter is all those things. The will of the Father is the first part of the charter, saying, I've chosen that I will adopt you. I've chosen to love you. I've chosen to make you my children. And then the work of the Son, that he gave us forgiveness through his blood, and redeemed us, and how that was given to us as well. And then the witness of the Spirit, we talked last week about proof that we're saved. What's the proof that you're a believer, that you're saved? And the answer is that you have the Holy Spirit. That's the simplest answer, is that you have the Holy Spirit. So these, this is like the threefold charter, okay? That's, that's what we study. And these threefold sections are going to abound in the book of Ephesians. In fact, I think we have like a picture. Oh, it's right here. I don't know how long that's been there. But if you look at this, this is the book of Ephesians in picture form. I'll try to get it out of your way so you can see. So if you were to draw a picture of Ephesians, that's what it would be. And so each of the branches is a threefold something. So there's seven groups of three in the doctrine section, which we're in right now. And then there's seven groups of three in the, in the practical section. All right. And that's how the book is divided. You have three, threefold charter. Then we're going to have the threefold um, uh, prayer. That's what we're going to study today. And then we're going to have the threefold union and it's going to keep going. We're going to have all these groups of three. And those are represented by the three grapes up there on each of the branches is these threefold things. I love these things because they help me realize, how could someone write this? How could someone say, I'm going to write a book, a letter to someone, and I'm going to divide it up into two sections. And then I'm going to divide those into seven groups of three. And all these things are just, I think the Holy Spirit wrote it. 
I think Paul inspired, or Paul was inspired by the Spirit to write this book, and that's why it's so divinely amazing. In, in the middle of the two different sections, you have the, uh, the central prayer, which is that they would be rooted and grounded in love, which is what the whole book is kind of focused on. And so as we're studying the book of Ephesians, I'm going to refer back to this. I'm going to teach it this way so that you guys can have the visual picture of what the book of Ephesians is like, as well as just listening. All right. So does that work for you? You guys good with that? Okay. So today we're looking at the second group of three, the second group there, and it's called the threefold prayer of Paul for the believers. It's a request that the first part of Ephesians will be real in the lives of the Ephesian Christians. So all the stuff we learned about, that threefold charter, the, the work of the, the Son, the will of the Father, the witness of the Holy Spirit, he, this is now his prayer that those would be real. So let's take a look at it. In verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1, it says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So here's his, kind of his little introduction to it. And right in this very beginning, Paul teaches us a very important lesson. And that's that after you talk to someone about the Lord, you really need to talk to the Lord about that person. Paul's heart, I believe, is probably a lot like mine. I can so easily get in the flesh after I talk to someone about the Lord. I can get prideful, arrogant, or depressed and despondent. Like, you just share the Lord with someone, or you talk to someone about something of the Lord, and maybe it goes well, maybe it doesn't go well, it doesn't really matter. If you don't then retreat and get away and pray, things start to get messed up in your heart, or in my heart anyway. I either get Really prideful, like, yeah, you see me share the word with that person. That was awesome. God, did you see that? Or I get like, it's not going to matter. Why did I even share with them? And instead of either one of those, Paul, he retreats and he prays. He takes these things before the Lord. This is a very practical lesson for those of us who are married or those of you who are thinking of getting married in the near future. Every time we have a discussion, I think that this is teaching us that we should bathe those discussions in prayer afterwards and before. Get away and talk with the Lord. Because sometimes when you're married, you have to have some discussions because your wife is the only person who tells you you got bad breath. Or your husband might be the only person who tells you you're acting weird right now. And those conversations, maybe even you're having a conversation about the things of the Lord, they can be sometimes difficult to process. Sometimes they're not handled with the amount of gentleness or love or sincerity that they need to be. And these conversations, need to, we need to pray. We need to get back and get out of that conversation when we're done and go to our closet and pray. That's how, that's how the, the Spirit marinates in, the, in that relationship. Maybe in your marriage or in your job, you feel like all the conversations you are having are falling on deaf ears. Maybe, wife, you've been telling your husband the same thing for 10 years. Stop doing this or do this. Amen, girls? You're like, yeah, I know what you're talking about there. 
Or maybe, guys, at your job, you've been trying to initiate some sort of change with your boss, and you've been telling him and telling him and telling him, and they're not listening. And you're just about to throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm done with this. Sidlow Baxter, famous preacher, said, Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, and despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. They're helpless. So pray, pray, pray. Women, wives, pray. Maybe you have talked to him every day for 10 years. Stop. Just pray. Spend some time and pray about that issue and see if the Lord changes your heart on it. Men, pray for your boss. Well, he doesn't even know the Lord, so pray about it. So, here we see Paul's prayer now. His prayer gives us amazing insights into what's really going on in the spiritual world of these believers. And like I said, there's going to be three parts, three grapes that we're going to bite into and see what the Lord gives us today. So these three parts of the prayer. First, I'm going to tell you this little story. There's there's a story of a man named Ivan Denisovich. This is a Russian story. It was was a fictional uh, work, uh, but he endured, it, it was kind of based on the true horrors of the Soviet prisons of the 1950s. And uh, in these prison camps. And one day, he was praying, this guy Ivan in the story, uh, with his eyes closed when a fellow prisoner noticed him and says with ridicule, prayers won't help you get out of here any faster. And he opened his eyes and, and Ivan said, I don't pray to get out of prison, but to do the will of God. Wow. That changes my perspective on prayer. Am I praying just to get out of the tough situation I'm in? Or am I really wanting to see God's will be accomplished in my life and my spouse or my boss or my friend or my enemy? What am I actually praying for? What's my heart? Well, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, this is what he prayed. He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul's prayer begins with a simple request that they would receive revelation from God himself. Not that Paul's message would be so polished that the people couldn't help but, having, but repenting on their knees and having their lives changed. Or not that the church's media ministry is so dynamic that people couldn't help but repent. That's not what he prays for. He prays that God himself would do the work of bringing wisdom and revelation into someone's life. And that it would be not just revelation about stuff, but it would be revelation of God himself. That's this prayer. That's how it begins. See, God does the work of revealing spiritual truths to a heart and a mind because our minds can't naturally grasp the things of the Spirit. We were born in flesh. We grew up all the years that we grew up going to kindergarten and first grade, and I don't remember anyone teaching me in kindergarten or first grade to perceive the same things of the Spirit. In fact, if they did, I would have thought they were weird. And so, God does desire to bring us wisdom in these areas, but it has to come from Him. 
And he's really good at teaching us this way. And so Paul, he prays that way. Even though Paul just spent some verses explaining some stuff, which is great, and we studied those, and those are great. Now he's praying that God does the work, which I hope is a reality in our church, too, that we don't just come to church on Sundays and study the Bible and hope to get something out of it of our mind. But I pray, I know I have been praying for you. Not that I would teach you, but that God would teach you this week. That's what I've been praying for. Not that I would be the funniest guy, but that God would teach you. I haven't even been praying that you guys have a good time. Which is, maybe I should pray that, but... (laughs) No, what I've been praying for is that God would do a powerful work. Because that's what we're here for. And yes, do we have a good time? Sure. We all have a, you know, we're blessed to be together, but that's what we're praying for. You know, as a pastor, or when we're out there sharing the truth uh, about spiritual truths... Um, you know, we can have great arguments, we can have proof texts, and people still won't believe. But when the Lord draws them, just as Jesus said he would in John chapter 6, he says, my Father will draw those who he's given to me, then they just get it. They just get it. You know, some people who have the most powerful ministry, I look at some of these evangelists who have super powerful ministries, and people are getting saved left and right, And I'm like, what did he say that was so awesome? And the answer is nothing. Sometimes they don't say anything that's really cool. They're just like, you know what? You need to get saved. And people are like, I know. Why haven't I done this before? And I'm like, I just argued with this guy for 45 minutes about the meaning of soteriology. And they didn't, he didn't respond at all. And this guy's like, you need to get saved. And he's like, all right, let's get saved. And how does that happen? Because it's true. It's a reality. It's because there's prayer going on. The Holy Spirit is working. The Holy Spirit is drawing them. And so now we get to the first of the three grapes, the first of the three things that Paul prays for. And the first one is that they would... Well, actually, hang on. Before we get there. Many people think that the solution to their problems is that they know themselves. But Paul says here, he's praying that they know God. In fact, you go on the, the internet today or you go to a, a psychological college or, or something, uh, get really into the psychological world that's out there today, and they will tell you it's real important for you to know yourself. But Paul doesn't pray that they would know themselves. And I think that's important for us to understand. When someone comes to you and says, hey, the, the way to fix your life is for you to figure out you. And that can be, it can sound good. It really does sound good to our ears. But the truth of God's word is that knowing yourself doesn't fix yourself. Knowing God fixes you. Knowing God does. And so that's why he prays that they would know God. He's praying for that. And his grace and his character, when you start to know God and his grace and his character, you start to experience his healing. Because to know him is to love him. And when you're in a loving relationship with him, you're, you're having a fountain of water spring up from your heart, and it's awesome. You know, they, um, when, you, when you start to look inside yourself, you find unanswerable problems. You find out that you, you're, you're presented with sin, selfishness, and incurable deceit. And you're like, how do I become not a sinful person? Without God in that context, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. 
It's like looking for a solution by looking at the problem when there's, and there's no solution, just evidence. That's what looking inside does. And so we look, you know, they tell you, look back at the painful memories and, and see how much they affected you. Yet Paul and Jesus implore us, don't look inside, look up. Look up to the Lord. Ask for revelation from God and wait to receive a gift of grace. Instead of looking inside and trying to find your own solutions, trying to figure stuff out, just look up. Look up and trust him. Trust him and wait for him. Oh, but I don't want to do it that way. Well, tough. That's what the Lord says to do. And yes, psychologists and people trained in that way of thinking will call me foolish and naive and just leading people astray, but I will stand against that for my whole life. It does not fix you. We have no need for a man saying he studied the soul when God himself has given us directions for the soul. Psychology means study of the soul. I'm not coming down on psychologists right now. In general, if you're a psychologist, I love you. <laughs> I, my, one of my best friends is a psychologist. I, I, it's okay as the Lord redeems it. But the, the, the ideas that are put forth are out anti-biblical. And we've got to be careful. So there you go. You know, it gets under the skin of humanistic thinking, humanistic people. This idea of just look at, just ask for God and just wait for revelation. This idea really gets under the skin of humanistic people. They can't imagine that this type of humble dependence um, will work because they themselves haven't learned to trust the Lord and trust his promises. They look at the soul as something that has evolved. And so the way to fix it is by working through an evolutionary way of thinking. But yet God made our soul. It's a spiritual thing, and he knows how to deal with it. And he does his soul surgery. He does his spiritual healing by relationship, by relationship with him. And that's why Paul says that you would know him, that you would know him, not know about him, but know him intimately, have a relationship with him. Alfred said... For philosophy, philosophy comes to man with the message, know thyself. But the gospel meets him with a far more glorious and fruitful watchword, know thy God. And now we get to the first grape. He says, now he prays that they would understand all that Jesus has done for them. Look at verse 18. He says, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance among the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? This threefold prayer that we just read. So the number one was hope. Number two is the inheritance. And number three is the power. Those are the three things that Paul is praying that they will understand. That's the threefold prayer. Those are the three grapes that we're talking about. Hope, inheritance, and power. Those are the three aspects of the believer's reality that Paul is wanting God to explain to these people. He's saying, Paul is saying, I, I could try to explain it to him, but God is going to work so much better if you just do it by your spirit. And I think you guys will see why. Let's look at the first one. 
hope. And with each of these, it's going to kind of be the same. That if you don't understand this, you're going to be carnal. You know, in other places, Paul addresses in Corinthians carnal Christians, carnal believers. Okay? And that doesn't mean a believer who just has no care for the things of God. Because that's not a believer. You're not saved if that's you. But a carnal believer, the way Paul addresses him, is a believer who wants to know the Lord, loves the Lord, but yet is struggling. And they're, they're maybe even failing. But God is bringing victory, but, but they're not seeing the growth. They're not seeing the fruit in their life that they want to see, that God wants to see in their life. And so a carnal believer always struggles with hope. And I believe that when you struggle with hope, it will, lend, it will make you carnal in your thinking. This is the reason why they get so caught up with the things of the world. Because when you're carnal and you don't understand hope, you don't understand that we're going to go to heaven. We have a hope of heaven. And it's not going to disappoint us. And so we lose perspective when we don't have that hope. When we're, when we're not constantly thinking about heaven. We lose this perspective and we need to remember heaven. It gets our hearts established on Jesus. Because here's the thing. When we don't have this hope, we're never happy or satisfied. Have you noticed that? When you're not thinking about heaven all the time, what are you thinking about? This earth. And does this earth, does this earth ever satisfy you? The answer is no. Does it ever truly make you happy? And the answer is no. No matter how much the rich people say they're happy, the truth is they have a deep lack inside their soul. And the same thing is true for us when we get our eyes off of heaven. We're always looking for the bigger house or the faster car, the better job or the, the different spouse. There's always something that we think would make us happy. But when we think that our hope lies here on the earth, we get consumed with trying to find it and we become carnal. But when heaven is our number one priority and, and it's number one in our hearts and it's number one in our minds, when hope is there, contentment and joy also come along as a byproduct. And that's just the reality of the situation. The people who desire to give up their lives for the sake of Jesus, they are like the happiest people you've ever met. And some of them are poor as all get out, but they've given it all up for the Lord. And you know what? They have joy and contentment that the world can't steal, that nothing can change. And you look at them and you're like, how do they have that hope? How do they have that joy and that contentment? Where they, they must have been trying to find that joy somewhere. They must have found the secret. And the truth is, they just stopped trying. They stopped trying to be joyful and content with this world, and they got their eyes onto heaven, onto Jesus. Because when he comes back, we get everything, right? Well, on Wednesday night, we're studying the book of Zechariah, and we're just about to get into the crazy apocalyptic prophecies in chapter 9 about how he just rocks this world when he comes back. And, and part of that is that we get everything. We get all the inheritance. It's amazing. You get anything you ever wanted. And I believe that that coming back is going to be soon. And that's when our inheritance is going to be revealed. Our rewards from Jesus happen. And our hope gets our heart focused on that. And that's when we come to number two, the inheritance. Paul prays that they would know the riches of the glory 
of his inheritance in the saints. It takes wisdom and revelation from God to understand what this means. Because the way we see it, we can't see it. This is trusting something that we can't see. And any investor will tell you not to make an investment on something you can't see, don't they? If you don't, if you don't, if you don't have a guarantee on this, don't make that investment. But as soon as Jesus comes, we will get to see it. And you ask, well, why do you think that's going to be soon? Well, I'm really glad that you asked that question. Because <laughs> I wanted to talk about prophecy. <laughs> it's one of my favorite topics, is talking about prophecy. The soon return of Jesus. And I want to draw your attention now to when we're going to get this inheritance. When Jesus comes back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And it says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. That... One day, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as, a, as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Jesus, when he ascended, and he died, he died on the cross, and he, he rose from the dead, and then he hung out with people for like 40 days, they were like, all right. Are you going to, right now, is, is right now the time that you're going to set up your kingdom in Jerusalem and rule the world and make everything happy? Is this, this the time? And he's like, no, it's not. It's going to be later. Well, when is it? Well, we'll talk about that another time. But I'm going to go away. And I'm going to come back soon. And that was 2,000 years ago. And so people come along today, and they were even in Peter's time, said, ha! He said he would be back soon, and look, it's been like five months in their time. Or in our time, it's been like 2,000 years. But that's why Peter wrote this verse. He said, Don't, in, in God's economy, this has not been a long time, because 1,000 years is as a day. So from God's perspective, it's only been two days he's been gone, which is really interesting. And when you, when you follow that type of logic, and when you look at those things, there's some really amazing psalms that talk about him always returning on the third day, on the dawn of the third day, but you can get into that on your own. Maybe in Psalm 90, you can read that one. Moses wrote that psalm, and it's a prophecy about um, the coming of the Lord as well. So you have this day being as a thousand years. And it also makes sense from the idea of the six days of work and the seventh, and the seventh day of rest, right? Because the world, according to the Bible, if you count all the years up in the Bible, the, the world was created about 6,000 years ago. And there's been a lot of trouble on this world in those last 6,000 years. But Jesus has promised a millennium. And that millennium, prophesied in the Bible, is 1,000 years when he rules and reigns everything and is perfect, awesome, couldn't be better. Rest. And that's why we're coming to the end of the 6,000-year time right now. And that's why another reason why I believe it's very soon that Jesus is going to be coming back. So, it makes sense for that. And this idea keeps us close to him. It keeps us thinking about the inheritance of the saints. And it keeps us living with an urgency for the Lord. That's why it keeps us from being carnal. When you think that Jesus is coming back and he's bringing your inheritance, it might affect where you go hang out on a Friday night. It might affect what you look at on your computer. It might have an effect. I challenge you to have a heavenly mindset and see what effects it has in your life. But, but, the reverse is also true with the Lord. That 
a thousand years or a day could be like a thousand years. And especially if you're going through some real difficult situation, you know, how long am I going to be stuck in this job? It feels like every day is a thousand years, doesn't it? Or maybe how long am I going to be stuck in my life? Everything seems like it's, going to, it's just taking forever. You know, my slow car, my small house. This Bible study even seems like it's a thousand years long. <laughs> but the promise, of, the promise of the inheritance might feel as distant as the farthest star in your heart right now. But the Lord can reveal and bring wisdom to your heart right now through prayer, because we've been praying. And, so, and let me illustrate it to you like this, okay? If I were to offer my son Jordan a piece of candy or a piece of paper, which do you think he would pick today? Now, he doesn't even know how to read yet, and he might see that this paper has the word check on it and, and $1,000. And I'd offer him, I'd say, Jordan, if I offered you this $1,000 check or this piece of candy every day for the rest of your life, at his first grade mind, I know what he would pick. I'll pick the candy he would pick. But me as his father, I would intercede and say, no, what you want is this. This is your inheritance. The candy is today's pleasure. The inheritance is what I know that you're going to care about in the future. I know you're going to want it more when you grow up, than the candy. And the Lord is doing the same thing in our lives. He knows that when we go through the trials, it seems like a thousand years. But in reality, what's going on when you're suffering, when you're going through these trials, and you're trusting Him, is you're making deposits in your bank account, you're, you're cashing these thousand dollar checks that for eternity, in the next billion, trillion, bazillion years, you're going to care about. And you're going to look back and say, God, thank you so much for giving me that wicked boss. Because through that, I was able to trust you, I was able to love, and deposits were made that could never be taken away. Things I really care about now that I live in eternity, those are just there. And God was there for you even when you didn't know it yourself. Even when it didn't feel like it. God, where are you? I'm giving you an inheritance. God, I'm so angry at you for going through this. I know. I know you want that sucker. But don't be a sucker. Don't be a sucker for just getting the things that this world has to offer. Make deposits even though it's hard, even though going through this is, it takes endurance. You know, that's how we endure and glorify the Lord in the middle of our trials, knowing that he is giving us a better inheritance. So that's the life of faith. Believe that God sees you in the secret and will reward you. The third grape, the third part, our last point is power. If not knowing that hope makes you carnal. And if not knowing that inheritance makes you carnal, not knowing the power 
is, is a thousand times more deadly to a Christian's life. One New Year's Day, in the Tournament of Roses parade, a beautiful float suddenly sputtered and quit until someone could get a can of gas. The amusing thing was that this float represented the Standard Oil Company. And with all its vast resources and reservoirs, its truck was out of gas. And that is exactly what was going on in the Ephesians' life. And maybe what's going on in your life, and is certainly going on in the life of a carnal believer. If misunderstanding and neglecting hope and inheritance are two realities that cause carnality, this is kind of restating what I said, then, uh, in Christians, then misunderstanding power is ten or a thousand times more debilitating to the life of a believer. Paul begs God to reveal to them the exceeding greatness of his power. It's been simply stated that God's commands are his enablements, and it's so true. He provides all the resources needed to live this Christian life. And I'm going to read a Spurgeon quote, because Spurgeon's my favorite. I love him. So here's a Spurgeon quote for you on this topic. Many Christians do not know this power, or they know only they know it only from a distance. God wants resurrection life to be real in the life of the believer, the very same power which raised Jesus, from, Jesus Christ from the dead is waiting to raise the drunkard from his drunkenness, raise the thief from his dishonesty, and raise the Pharisee from his self-righteousness, and to raise the Sadducee from his unbelief. The same power. That's great. And you say it's a wonderful, wonderful power, power, but I want proof, you may ask. It sounds like a great power, okay? What's the proof that I have that this power is actually available to me? Well, I wish there was some sort of example of the extent of this power in the life of a person. I wish that was... Oh, wait, let's read the next verse and see what it says here. Verse 19. What kind of power was it? Show me the extent. Show me a description of this power. Okay, verse 19. What, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and might and dominion that at the na- every name that is named, not only in this age, but also which is to come. F.F. Bruce is a theologian, and he said, If the death of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God, the resurrection of Christ is the supreme demonstration of his power. See, the power is according to, Paul said, according to the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that's available to you, the power that Paul is praying that you understand is according to. It's not out of the power that raised him from the dead. It's not just a little bit of the power. It's the same power. So imagine with me the amount of power it takes to rise someone from the dead. All of this world has been focused on, all the scientists have been trying to create life. And they spend billions and trillions of dollars on these machines. And it's like, 
you got Dr. Frankenstein and it's always got power, right? And there's electricity going between the two ears and, and he's always like, it's alive, right? The, the idea even of creating a life has to do with power. What kind of power is required to create life? And the answer is immeasurably more than you could ever imagine. It takes the full power of God to, to bring life to death. And nothing else. And that power was demonstrated when Jesus rose from the dead. God proved he had that power. And then that power is offered to you. That's, you know, and then it says that this power raised Jesus up to heaven and he's sitting there. Just basking in the glory of God and above everything. Just glorified, exalted. It's awesome. Everything. You know, it's exactly where I want to be. Sitting in heavenly places, just relaxed and at rest from my striving and enjoying the Lord and his goodness. That's where Jesus is and that's where I want to be. And that's the glorious, wondrous truth we have laid out for us at the end of this prayer. That the power that physically raised Jesus from the dead is available to you every day for you to live a resurrected life. We never have to lack any resources to live by the Spirit To live a spirit-filled, Christ-like life, all we have to do is believe. They are always fully given to us when we believe. And that's what grace is. That's a great definition of grace. But when you don't believe, and you don't surrender, and you trust in your own resources and abilities, and you think in the morning, I need to try harder. I need to find out what I have inside me. I need to do this. I need to do that to please God and to change this world and to make people happy, you're trusting in yourself. And you will be disappointed. It's a life of tiredness. It's a life of disappointing yourself, disappointing others, disappointing even God. Because he didn't ask you to do it that way. And I desire to see these qualities banished from our lives here at White Flag And in all the church around the world, truthfully, I am personally, this is a big thing for me, I'm personally committed to pray for and declare every truth of his grace to his people. To stop trying. Be free from trying. And just receive and believe. That's what I'm passionate about. Because I hate people. I hate watching. I don't hate people. That sounded horrible. Why didn't anyone throw a rock at me right then? I hate seeing people pushing their cars down the street. Does that ever happen to you? Maybe you saw this in the news this December. That uh, heavy snow fell in the Middle East, all in Jerusalem and Jordan and all that this December. And they made snowmen in front of the Jerusalem and the Dome of the Rock and everything. And that snowball fights and everything there. Pretty crazy. And in Jordan, King Abdullah II took the opportunity to, to, do, uh, to do his people some good. And he helped them move their cars that were stuck in the snow. They took an inch of snow and all their cars were like stuck. But I love being from Colorado. I make fun of those people. The king had been touring Amman when he, when he stopped to lend a hand, according to uh, this English language website. So there's actually pictures of him doing it. And it was pretty funny. And I always feel like I have to do that when someone's stuck, don't you? Like, oh, they're stuck. You know, if I was stuck, I'd want someone to help me. So. But this is an, actually an illustration of grace and the Christian life, Okay. It's like you, when you get saved, you get this new car. 
you get this brand new car, and you're so excited about it, and you're excited, you know the Lord Jesus, and you're like, look what Jesus did for me on the cross. And that's like taking people into the garage and showing it off, and look at this brand new car, it's got pretty paint. I love it, I'm so excited about it. And so you're taking your friend in your garage, and he says, hey, well, let's, let's go take it for a drive, let's take it for a spin. So he, he gets in the passenger seat, and you're like, yeah, let's do it. And you, you open the, the, the car door, and you take it out of park, and you put it in neutral, and you go to the back, and you start pushing it. And your friend is like, what are you doing? Why are you pushing it? And you're all excited. Hey, look, I got it to two miles an hour. Isn't this awesome? I love this new car. It's so exciting. And he's like, aren't you tired? And I'm like, oh, I am so tired. I am beat. I, I just don't even know how long I could do this for, but, but I, I, I've been given this car, so I need to do it. I've got to push it. And they look at you like you're crazy. And they get out, and they're finally like, what are you doing? Stop, stop, stop. Put on the brake, emergency brake. Come with me, I want to show you something. And they take you around to the front of the car, they pop the hood, and they open the hood, and you look at this shiny new engine. And, and you're just, what is that? And it's all, oh, you haven't seen anything like that, check this out. And he takes his key, and the key says believe on it. And you go over to the key, and he puts the key, and he, he turns on the engine, and <laughs> And he's like, wow, this is amazing. This is incredible. And he's like, you haven't seen anything yet. He gets you in, and you start driving down the road, and pretty soon you're screaming along at 80 miles an hour. Not speeding, of course. You're up in Montana. And you're just enjoying life. Why? Because that's what the car was designed to do. It wasn't designed to be pushed. It was designed to be driven. It was designed as a power source for you. And this is exactly what we are supposed to be as believers. We have all been given this car. And when you're tired, it's because you have decided to try to push it for a little while. When your Christian life is a burden, that's why. It's because you have gotten behind the car and you started pushing. And here I am, your pastor telling you, hey, Just believe the Lord for the power. Just get in the comfortable seat, turn it on, believe, and start going. That's how this works. So do you believe? Can you put your trust in Him to live this Christian life? You know, we've been learning that this is how Paul prayed, so I think we should also pray that God reveals this to our hearts more and more, because I've been learning about grace for many years now. I teach the guys about grace on the men's study, and, and constantly, consistently, the Lord reminds me, and the Lord reveals to me times where I'm, not, I'm pushing the car. And I'm like, I've known about this for a long time. How can I go back and push the car? And then he's just like, you're such a prideful idiot. Just trust me, humble yourself before me, and see what the Lord does. So I think we need to pray that he continues to reveal this to our hearts, that he gives us the ability to trust him. Let us pray that he opens our eyes and the eyes of all believers to the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe.
I'm going to read to you these verses from the, the, the Message Bible just because it, it's really neat to hear, okay? It says, That's why when I heard of the solid trust that you have in the Master Jesus and your outpouring of love to all the followers of Jesus, I couldn't stop thanking God for you every time I pray. I think of you and give thanks. But I do more than that. I ask. Ask the God of our Master, Jesus, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning and knowing him personally, that your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what he is calling you to, grasp the immensity of his glorious way of life that he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy and boundless strength. 